0: Welcome to the Forecasting Impact, a podcast supported by the International Institute of Forecasters. This show brings you the most inspiring people to discuss a wide range of subjects on forecasting science and practice in business, society, economy, and education. Thank you for choosing to spend some time with us today. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Forecasting Impact. My name is uh, Mahdi Abu and I'm your host.
1: Hi everyone, this is Shari calling in from Belgium. We're having a very soft winter, but then I just heard the um the temperature where Mahdi is located. Uh, Mahdi, how much was it? 36 degrees?
0: Yeah, 36. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Probably so
1: <laughs> uh, so yeah, we are looking very much forward to our uh to our host today, which is uh Paul Goodwin. Um if there was ever a famous name in the field, it is Paul. Paul, nice to have you here today.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, pleasure
0: to have you. Uh for those of you um you don't know Paul, let me introduce him. Um Paul Goodwin is an emeritus professor at the University of Bath in the UK where he taught and researched forecasting and decision-making. He has written uh, numerous articles, authored several books, and consulted government and leading companies in forecasting and decision-making domains. In 2013, he was elected as an honorary fellow of the International Institute of Forecasters in recognition of his contribution to forecasting. Um, I'm really happy to have you here, Paul, today. Um, So for those of Asked that you, uh, we don't know, like, how did you start in your career? We know that you have been in forecasting for a long time, and uh, it would be interesting to know your story how you started.
2: Well, thank you. Um, Well, my first degree was uh, in economics, and it involved uh, an awful lot of mathematics and statistics. And um, many years ago, uh, because of that, I got a job that involved teaching evening classes in statistics to managers at a small college in Hull in the northeast of England. Uh, I remember the classes took place at a, a, an old 19th century school with all, with cracked blackboards and it was next to a tidal, fliv- a tidal river which occasionally flooded the place. Um, but one or two of the managers who were very keen would occasionally bring in their sales histories and their forecasts that were always based on judgment. And we'd see if basic statistical methods could yield more accurate forecasts than judgment. But I didn't know much about forecasting then. So the methods were things like moving averages and basic time series analysis. But my interest in forecasting was piqued. A few years later, I was fortunate to be seconded to do a master's degree at the University of Warwick, a degree in operational research. By coincidence, John Boylan, one of your earlier interviewees, was on the same course. Now, the degree included a state of the art course in forecasting. Uh, So I learned a lot more. I began to learn that there were methods other than moving averages. But the emphasis of the course was on Bayesian forecasting, a method developed by Harrison and Stevens. And this, of course, allows judgment to be formally incorporated into uh, models alongside statistical estimation. So I learned that judgmental inputs to forecasting were actually respectable, uh, that you could use them as part of a respectable statistical method. Um, My summer dissertation on that course involved doing some analysis at a cider company where the Harrison-Stevens method, Bayesian method, had been implemented. So when I got there, I said, well, can I have a look at your your Bayesian forecasting method? And uh, I was told it had been abandoned. Uh, very soon after its implementation because staff found it too difficult to use. So that taught me it's no good having a, an elegant, highly mathematical forecasting method if people won't use it. I then moved to Bristol where I taught a course in decision analysis uh, on an MBA with George Wright, who's also done a lot of work in forecasting uh, George had a psychology background, so he introduced me to the work of Tversky and Kahneman, uh, who, of course, have explored judgment extensively. And all this was new to me at the time. I realised there are opportunities to explore the application of these ideas to forecasting. And people like Michael Lawrence, Marcus O'Connor, Deleck, Uncle, were already getting some very interesting results in this field. Well, George introduced me to Robert Files. Uh, earlier on, Robert had impressed me at a talk given in London about his experiences with the Bell Telephone Company and uh, he introduced me to Robert and soon I was signed up to do a PhD uh, with Robert as a supervisor at Lancaster University and uh, the rest, as they say, is history.
0: Excellent. Uh, That's that's a nice story in history. So we have a few familiar names there. And um, you know, and you know we have uh, Robert Fords and uh, John Boylan, so you have started you, your collaboration with them long time ago, and you still have ongoing collaboration, I guess, with 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 both of them. What do you do these days? Well, what are you currently focused on? How do you spend your days?
2: Well, of course, I am uh, I am uh, retired uh, officially, although my wife would say I'm unretired um so I do spend a lot of time uh, writing and uh, and doing uh, doing research. Uh, you might say, well why am I doing it given that i'm I'm retired? Well, I find academia is I'm afraid addictive um, and research is is addictive. And um, mm. I know that you can just switch switch off. I, I, I enjoy teasing findings out of data, uh, uh, testing theories, giving the odd guest lecture. Uh, and I enjoy the writing process as well. A lot of people hate the writing process. I, I really enjoy it. And, and again, I enjoy collaborating with colleagues. It's, it's great to keep in touch and discuss ideas with people. Um, and the thrill of having a paper accepted after all these years, that's never gone. It's always a great day if you have a paper accepted, particularly if, if it's been through a few revisions and you've you've struggled with it and tried to improve it. It's, it's, a, it's a great feeling getting a paper accepted. Uh, so it's a bit like a drug. Um, but but I don't, of course, I, I have got more time to do research now I'm retired. I don't have student grading or marking to do. Um, so I do tend to confine my work to perhaps mornings or a few days days a week. Um, beyond that, I set myself the objective when I retired. I'm, I must get fit. Uh, so I, I do uh, quite uh, intensive exercises most days. Uh, Despite my advanced years, I've taken up running. I go out running. um, And in fact, this evening, I'll be plodding around the um, dark lanes of southern England uh, with the local running club. And uh, on Saturdays, I do the park run with about 150 other people. So uh, it's a mixture of trying to keep the brain active and the body active. Um, uh, I think the two things complement each other, hopefully.
1: Well, I, I remember that you've been working on that for a while because I remember the ISF in Santander in Spain. Um, that um you inspired many of us to buy a Fitbit. Um and um that you were running at home on um uh not on a treadmill, but on a on a cross trainer. Train, um, yes, yes. And that you had decided to go for a run on the beach. And I always wonder that that's a big transfer though. From a cross trainer, which is very easy running, to going to run on the sand. Uh, so, but you're still keeping it up, you're still running.
2: Yes, you see, in between injuries. I, I regularly in injure myself, and, and I get told you must give this up. But uh, again, I think both running and research—they're they're my two addictions. Uh, and yeah. uh, uh, so, as it's difficult to give up research, it's also difficult to give up running. You do get a high after a run, and uh, and uh, that's something uh, which I can't. Yeah, um,
1: I, I I must say I am one of those people who has never experienced a high after exercise, so I don't see the appeal.
2: <laughs> No, it's a
1: great. Uh, term, yeah. So, so you're not just writing papers; you are publishing books at a high pace as well. We've got a lot of your books coming out in the last uh, couple of years. Um, could you tell us maybe a bit about your your last one?
2: Well, the last one was called uh, "Something Doesn't Add Up." It was uh, really about our modern obsession with wanting to measure everything—everything everything from happiness to health. Um, and uh, our obsession with, with having league tables for things like world happiness and so on. Um, and indeed, our obsession with Fitbits. I mean, I, 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 we need, do need to quantify everything, and it's a feeling as if it's not quantified, it hasn't happened. So, for example, uh, on occasions, I've done a run and got back home and been horrified that I haven't been wearing my Fitbit. So, so it's as if I haven't done a real run and I often madly think, should I go out for do the run again? So it registers on the Fitbit and I get the the quantitative measurement of that run. So the book is really all about uh, our obsession with uh, numbers. um, And although this is good in many ways, uh, the limitations of of this obsession. So it's called Something Doesn't Add Up. It was published by Profile Books a couple of years ago.
1: So I, I have that one lying here next to me. And also, of course, and you notice already that I'm a very uh, heavy fan of uh, Forewarned, um, which I like to recommend to my students when they want to know all about biases in forecasting. Um, but you've also written a book recently, um, Profit from Forecasting Software. Now, I have to admit, I haven't read it yet. Mahdi has.
0: Yes, I've read um, that fully.
1: <laughs> yeah, Okay, so Mahdi, maybe you can take over from here for, uh, yeah, for this line of questioning.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's an excellent book, really easy read. I enjoyed reading this book. And, you know, um, just a few nights I spent a couple of hours and uh, I was, you know, into this book. And So, um, Paul, who did you write this book for and what was your intention from writing this book, first of all?
2: Well, if I can go back a few years to the early 1990s when I was uh, working in Bristol, um, I was asked to run a training course for uh, one of Britain's largest telecom companies, a a training course in forecasting. And I was asked if I could cover topics like uh, simple exponential smoothing. And I actually lost sleep before the course. I thought, well, these are professional forecasters. They've been working for years They're going to be experts in basic forecasting methods. And I actually had, I envisaged scenarios of them storming out of the course saying, you know, this is all trivial. We've been doing this for years. Why are you teaching us these methods that we're familiar with? In the event, the course was a great success. All the people on it said how much they'd enjoyed it, how much they'd learned. And one of the attendees told me, we have been using simple exponential smoothing for years we always wondered what it was. They'd been using it on the software, they'd been pressing the simple exponential smoothing button, but no idea what was going on under the bonnet of the computer, so to speak. Um, So I've come across many people who find themselves in forecasting without any uh, training or support. Um, Often these people have a non-technical background. They're often experts in their markets and, and, and their products and so on, but they don't have a technical background. Uh, you can all imagine a scenario where a person is in the coffee bar at the wrong time on a Friday, and the manager walks in, uh, picks them out, and says, uh, Our forecaster has just resigned. Can you be our forecaster from next Monday? Um, uh, and then they're, and they're thrown into this job with no background, no, no experience, and, and no technical knowledge. So the book is really aimed at people who find themselves in this position. They're, they're, they're given software to make forecasts. But they they have limited knowledge of of forecasting, um, and they want to know uh, what happens when the computer crunches the numbers to produce its forecasts. They need to know the advantages and disadvantages of different methods um, and and what the advantages are of different accuracy measures, for example. And um, they may be unfamiliar with terms like autocorrelation or multiplicative seasonality or measures like R squared. And they also may want to know, when is it permissible or when is it advisable to make a judgmental override to the statistical forecast? Uh, When should they do this and when they should not? So it's it's really designed to be an easy read, uh, familiarizing people without a formal background in technical forecasting uh, with the methods and what their uh, pros and cons are.
0: Yeah, it's an easy read indeed. Uh, so you talk about, you know, the, the, the software in the book. So one part that I was reading the book, you mentioned that automation is not always useful. So we've got to be careful uh, with automation. So could you tell us, um, you know, with, with all the things going on now, we are moving to automation and everywhere you hear about machine learning model as well. But could you tell us when we should be really careful about
2: automation? Yes. Well, I think that the, the, there are several problems with, with automation, especially highly technical automation, in that it is often not explainable and uh, managers may not accept forecasts if they don't understand their rationale and they may therefore resort to overriding the forecast with rough and ready judgment. So that's, that's one problem with automation. The Other problem is when you have special events or or fundamental changes. I mean, COVID has produced examples of this sort of situation where automated methods may go on processing past patterns and project these forward uh, when, of course, those past patterns are no longer um, relevant or are providing a very poor guide as to what's going to happen into the future. The ideal, I think, is to allow automation to run on. I mean, many companies have thousands of forecasts to make. You you can't produce those forecasts individually using judgment. So I think the thing is to automate the bulk of your forecasts where appropriate, but have a management by exception system where you have things like tracking signals, picking up the odd forecasts that are going wrong and allowing people then to apply their judgment or to review those forecasts and analyse why they're going wrong. So I think automation is great for routine forecasts, routine situations, stable situations. Um, but you do need to identify uh, the situations where uh, you need to intervene and examine why those why the odd forecasts are going wrong.
1: Yes, and, and that's something that um, our field is, is really focused on is that the fact that the judgmental adjustments are still going wrong and we're f- having a hard time really finding you know, a, a one-size-fits-all solution as to how to stop people from making those wrong adjustments. And it reminds me of one of your papers. It will be 10 years ago now, I think, 2011, on restrictiveness and guidance in support systems. And when I started reading it a long time ago, I was like, oh, okay, here is going to be the paper with a solution. Uh, it's going to be restrictiveness and guidance. And then it turned out to not work and even had some opposite results with people making large adjustments on purpose to override the small adjustments restriction. Um, do you think, do you have any idea, like if you would, I, I'm trying to avoid the word forecast, but do you have any idea where the future will lead us in, in trying to manage judgments, manage adjustments?
2: Uh, yes, it, it's, a, good, it's a, a very good question. The, uh, as you say, the problem often is that people want a sense of ownership uh, of their forecasts. So I, I display my expertise in my job through my forecasts. Um, And I feel a resentment if I'm being replaced by some automated technology. Uh, um, In Britain, we had in the, I think, the 18th century, the the Luddites, uh, named after a man called Ned Ludd. And they were highly skilled textile workers who were being replaced by machines. And they went and smashed the machines. I'm sure forecasters must resent uh, when their skills are being, or perceived skills, are being replaced by uh, software by automation uh, almost. Um, so I think we continue to need to do research in this. I think restrictiveness offers some more opportunities for research. That was only one paper. The participants were management students, um, so of course it may be that managers would might react differently if uh, to restrictiveness. Um, I think more subtle forms of restrictiveness are potentially more useful. And, and one is to make people record a justification for an adjustment, not allowing them to uh, just make an adjustment without documenting some rationale for it. And that re- involves some effort. It involves some accountability as well. So you may- this can nudge people to only make adjustments when they think they're worthwhile, to avoid all those trivial gratuitous adjustments that people often make. So so I think rather than saying you can't do this, you can't do that, I think restrictors may work better if it has more subtle forms like asking for documentation and so on. Excellent. So yeah,
0: that's um, talking about the way to improve the judgments, what, what are the most common biases that uh, you know managers would make when they are uh, overriding the forecast of statistical or machine learning models?
2: Yes. Well, I think that there, are, that there are, first of all, there are motivational biases, a lot of politics in forecasting, doing a forecast to please the boss. Or setting your forecast low so you can say, hey, we've we've exceeded our forecast yet again. We're doing well. Um, uh, making high forecasts so that funding is attracted to your department because it seemed to be doing well in the future. So there are those motivational biases. And then there are psychological biases. And there are many, many of these. Um, optimism bias, for example, where you are um, over uh, where you could set your forecast higher because you're you you're over-optimistic without any evidence that the f- sales will be high. Uh, people, w- as human beings, we're very poor at handling randomness. We see patterns where there are none. And when a for- statistical forecast hasn't embodied those patterns, we think it's missed them. So we adjust the forecast, thinking that it's um, missed an important uh, Change in the, in the in our sales or whatever we're forecasting, so we're very poor at handling uh, randomness. Also, a lot of research has found that if you have upward trends, these tend to be underestimated. Surprisingly, of course, you've got things like optimism bias working against that. But if you can isolate uh, the, the this from optimism bias, there's a tendency for us to underestimate upward trends. Uh, exponential trends were absolutely appalling at estimating. Uh, I mean, I used to uh, use the example in my classes of folding a piece of paper forty times and saying, "How th- how thick do you think the paper will be at the end?" And people would say, "Or oh, an inch, or two inches thick." And if you do the maths, it would, it would actually be halfway to the moon. Uh, so we have a very poor conception of exponential growth, as, as, as well as not being able to forecast linear trends. Uh, But there are many, many more uh, biases as well, uh, both motivational uh, and and cognitive or psychological uh, that that we could talk about, I'm sure, for hours.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, you know, we know judgment is indispensable from, you know, forecasting. We use that uh, to some extent, whether that is in, you know, developing the statistical model or what data to use how you want to incorporate data or overriding the output of the model or maybe combining it in totally having a judgmental forecasting and then combining it with another model. So there. Are, um, so what is the best practice? What's the best way to you know, get the most out of your judgment? Would, would, would it be better to combine it within a statistical model? Or is it better to uh, override it, considering all these biases that we have? Or what is the best way? Well,
2: uh, judgment and statistical methods or algorithmic methods, I think are largely complementary. Human beings are very adaptable to sudden changes or special conditions. But as I've said, they tend to be very poor at um, handling things like randomness. So the ideal, if you can implement it, is to allow the statistical method to do the forecasting where it is strong and to allow judgment uh, to be used where where it is strong um so um so, so that's basically uh, the ideal um and i think software has great potential uh, for improving the role of judgment it, it can provide relevant relevant information guidance and feedback in an easily assimilated form so people can handle information as it arrives. Uh, And it can facilitate things like decomposing the task into smaller bite-sized chunks. Often a judgmental task is complicated. Software can help to break it down into separate judgments, which may be more more accurate. And as I've said, it can be designed to nudge people to more acceptable uh, behaviour. There is, I think, however, a, a problem at the moment. A lot of our research has been into how software can be used to improve the role of judgment in forecasting. Um, But software companies are commercial enterprises. Um, They need to make a profit. Uh, Designing and producing new software is expensive, and there needs to be a a demand uh, for it. Um, Now, many managers would resent uh, having to be f- being forced to document reasons for changes to forecasts or being restricted in some way or, or, or whatever. So there's probably not a demand for uh, effective uh, software uh, products in many cases and if not a demand software companies aren't going to produce them. So most software these days is sold on the basis of the statistical sophistication and accuracy of, it, of the methods that it embodies and there's therefore limited support. For the role of judgment, there aren't many, if any um current uh, commercial software products which do provide these supports for judgment i'm afraid
1: mm. yeah mm. and and the thing is also um you feel that research and software uh versus the practitioner track, it's going a bit in, in two different directions um so the we have machine learning now that can do so much and it can get better at uh forecasting. Uh, like you said, special events. Um, But the thing is, it's becoming more and more of a black box. So while they are being sold on their heightened accuracy um, and speed and processing power, um, there is very little attention being paid to, well, at at least I presume by software companies, to the acceptability of the forecast because it is um it is a black box it is similar to what you said in the 1990s when they uh, used exponential smoothing they simply pressed a button um and something came out and i think that is getting more and more complicated as machine learning is is entering um our companies so do you have any idea and I'm, now i'm asking you for <laughs> the solution to the big problem that's currently going around. Um, how can we make machine learning and very sophisticated methods more acceptable, more accessible?
2: Well, it is a, that is a very big question. I'm not sure I, I've got the uh, perfect solution. Um, first, First of all, I think it would be acceptable in many companies if you could demonstrate the benefits uh, of it. And the problem is demonstrating the benefits of forecasting, for example, the effect on profit and so on, the effect on the uh, customer service and uh, the, uh, and so on, is actually quite difficult. I- I'm sure if you could say to people, look, if you use this highly sophisticated method, you will save so many million pounds a year or so many million dollars or, or euros, Um, it would become more acceptable. But it's very difficult to actually often identify the monetary benefits of forecasting uh, and also the non-monetary benefits. Things like loss of customer goodwill uh, um, because you can't supply a product because uh, the demand exceeded what was forecast and so on. Um, So I think one major research area in the future might be researching and demonstrating the actual benefits of of more accurate forecasts. It's difficult, uh, but uh, I'm sure with thought it it could be done. So if we can demonstrate, look, this will improve your profit, people might accept it more, I think.
1: Yeah, interesting, very interesting.
0: Very interesting point. So you point out two things now. One is the um, showing the benefits of the forecasting. Yes, that's definitely very important and difficult to show. And the other one, the software, you know, we do really have a lack of, you know, um, softwares that they uh, consider the judgment part. So, um, and um, I don't know if they, you know the research software is is getting more and more active these days. At least we can see, but most of the methods that I have seen coming out. Uh, mostly in you know, machine learning and also statistical models. So these two areas are really um uh, the really interesting points that you, uh, you just mentioned but w- what else do you see that, that do we need in forecasting domain? and you have been in this uh, you know researching for uh, decades
2: well, what are the other things that is lacking in forecasting? i think the key problem for me, i think is, Organizational forecasting, which often is very different or very, very different from the ideal. I mean, it's, it's it's no good having, as I said earlier, highly sophisticated, brilliantly accurate methods if nobody's going to use them or accept them, or if they're going to run the software and then change change every, every forecast. So, from my perspective, I think the. Uh, a key question is improving uh, organisational uh, uh, knowledge and experience, and organisational practice of forecasting. Um, often, uh, forecasts are, as I say, uh, very different from from uh, ideals. Uh, they're politically motivated. Uh, people often use very simple methods often the the most common software uh, used is microsoft excel for forecasting um, you know more, more companies use that than dedicated forecasting software so i think there's an awful lot of research to be done to improve organizational practice in forecasting uh, f- from from my perspective
1: so are you talking more like a sort of awareness training for organizations awareness of forecasting techniques awareness of implications of doing certain things or
2: yes i think so yes i think uh, i mean i I think um there are lots of things that need to be done we need to ensure that forecasters uh, are have access to training uh we need to Um, convince people that dedicated forecasting software is generally better than using a a spreadsheet. Spreadsheets have all sorts of problems. You make a mistake in one cell and that can proliferate throughout the spreadsheet and so on. Um, uh, We we need um, to convince people but not to jettison data. Often companies throw their data away after three years. You might say that's more acceptable because of COVID, because things have changed, but I think data always has some value and it doesn't cost very much to store these days. We need to convince people not to confuse forecasts with targets and plans and decisions. Um, we, we need to get people to acknowledge uncertainty and measure uncertainty, uh, we've just been conducting lots of interviews with uh, forecasters as part of a project and senior managers often expect forecasts to be nearly 100% accurate i'm i'm paying you all this money to do the forecast why aren't you getting it right there's a misunderstanding i think of of uncertainty um and we need to get people to do things like measuring accuracy. Uh, many companies never look back uh, and measure their accuracy. Perhaps they don't want to know because it would be bad news. Um, uh, we we need them to get to implement things like forecast value added analysis, which uh, Mike Gilliland has, uh, has has developed, so they can see whether the judgmental interventions are worthwhile, where they're working and where they aren't. So I, I think there's lots of things we know that will improve forecasting. Uh, and it is actually uh, trying to convince companies to to follow these these principles.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think the foresight journal uh, is doing a really good job in this way because um, often most of the articles that you look at, you know, in a high level and technical enough, they're explaining what are the benefits. And I think we need more, uh, you know, kind of things uh, like foresight to to to. Um, really show the benefits of forecasting to the society and to the companies that they're um, not implementing what they want to implement, but they don't know how. Um, So um, yeah, so we're gonna move to the last part of our um, conversation. Uh, We often ask quick questions about this uh, at the end of our interview. Um, and we ask our uh, guests, uh, what's your recommended mastery paper or book in forecasting for our audiences? You can uh, mention a couple of them. Um, we'll be happy to take them into yes. account.
2: Well, well there, are, there are many good books on forecasting uh, by people like uh, Spiros Makadakis, uh, Rob Heineman, uh, George Athanopoulos, excuse my pronunciation, George, uh, Mike. Uh, Gilliland's uh, written a very practical book, and Charlie Chase is just, uh, of SAS has also just brought a, a very practical forecasting book out. Uh, but I'd like to put in a recommendation for the book um, Principles of Business Forecasting by Keith Ord, Robert Files, and Nikos Kouriensis. Um, it's very well written. It's comprehensive. It's practically orientated without sacrificing theoretical rigor. But doesn't seem to have a lot of attention. Uh, I think it deserves more attention. So I think I'd like to recommend that book. Excellent.
1: I I have it on my to read, to read list, and I thought that you know when the pandemic started, my to read list is finally going to shrink instead of grow, but. The opposite has happened. Like I, I need multiple tables now for all the books that I'm planning to,
0: <laughs> to still <laughs> read. Judgmental bias. <laughs> yeah, it's
1: here. over optimism. It's over optimism. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. I think I can never get into my uh, reading list uh, to finish mm-hmm. that. It's you know getting bigger and bigger in my iPad and also in <laughs> ebooks. and yeah. So, but thank you for recommending this book. Definitely. Um, so. Um the last but not the least, uh Paul, uh you have been retired, but not really retired. We have seen a lot of <laughs> books and papers still uh coming out. Um, how does your day look like? What do you do these days? Um
1: except for you know except for the running part. Is yes. there something else you would like you like to do during the day?
2: Uh, well, I, 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 as I say, I normally work in the mornings. I think uh, I, I'm mentally uh, better. I think I think my thinking is clearer in the mornings for some reason, actually. So I tend to uh, work on research and writing in the mornings, um, and then there are uh, many other things, uh, obviously fairly common things like uh, reading uh, fiction. Uh, I have a. A very challenging garden. The house is on the side of a rocky hill. Um, one of the slopes is forty-five degrees. I've rolled down there a few times. Uh, so a very challenging garden that can take uh, quite a lot of a lot of time uh, as well. Um, and uh, I, you know, w- 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 the day goes by. It's uh, it's it's a cliche to say uh, when you're retired. I don't know how I ever had time to go to work. I used to think, well, people are making that up. Now I understand uh, that uh, it is an accurate uh, description of retirement. And maybe it's Parkinson's law that work expands to fill the time available. Uh, I don't know. Uh, But um, I I can tell you this. I've never had one moment of boredom. Uh, since I've been retired, I thought retirement might be peeping through the curtains at the neighbours to see if they would put the bins out and this sort of uh, stuff, just to fill the time. I- I've I've not had one moment of of boredom. Uh, You're not
1: keeping an eye on the post being delivered, or uh,
2: no, uh, uh, no, I'm not waiting oh. at the door uh, yes. for half an hour before the postman <laughs> arrives because it's the most exciting, most exciting event of the day. Uh, I I just have uh, plenty of things to do. And, um I'd just like more time to do even more of them. Um,
1: can Can I ask a very nosy question? Um, what kind of, of fiction do you read?
2: um well i've i' I'm very sort of Catholic in my tastes, but the most recent books I've read are the Time Machine by H. G. Wells, and oh. i'm currently re- currently reading h g. wells the history of uh, of Mr. Polly um so i've i've i read a, a biography of hg wells and that motivated me to read more of his books so um, so that's what i'm reading at the moment of course their their books were written many of them written before 1900 so they ha- don't have a very modern style uh, but the time machine in particular i, I really enjoyed I, I could recommend that alongside the forecasting book
1: and it's kind of appropriate like the time machine forecasting um i'm I'm seeing a link here in uh, in general team. Um okay, so thank you so much for for being here and sharing your story with us and sharing like a little peek into your what your life is like at the moment. Uh, we are looking forward to more books <laughs> coming out to keep us uh, to keep us busy to keep us entertained. and um yeah, it was it was absolutely lovely having you here for a chat.
2: Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I've enjoyed talking to you as well. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Paul.
0: Keep up the great work and the enthusiasm that you have. And we uh, look forward to read more books and papers that you write. Uh, I really like the uh, writing style that you have as well. All right. Thank you so much, everybody listening to us. Uh, go and read everything that Paul has written. Uh, they're really, really good read, and I'm sure that you will enjoy and until the next time, See
1: you all. Bye.
0: Thank you for taking your time and listening to Forecasting Impact. If you like this show, please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. You can follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at Forecasting Impact. Ask your questions and share your thoughts with us. We appreciate you and we look forward to seeing you at our next episode.